St. Joseph's Health presents another edition of its podcast, St. Joseph's Health MedCast. So when you feel your heartbeat in your chest fluttering, skipping, pounding, an uncomfortable feeling, that's usually a sign of atrial fibrillation or AFib. And then we hear the term congestive heart failure. So what is that? What are the signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure? And how is that different from AFib? Well, we're going to find out with Dr. Russell Silverman, a cardiologist at St. Joseph's Health. Dr. Silverman, thanks for your time. So let's start with AFib. What exactly is it? Yes, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that occurs as a result of the top chamber of the heart going out of rhythm and resulting in a potentially very fast uh, response to the in the lower chambers. Normally, the heartbeat initiates in, let's say, the upper right part of the heart, the right atrium, and travels through both top chambers, the right and left atrium, and then filters down into the bottom chambers, the ventricles. And it's a very organized uh, heart rhythm. But in atrial fibrillation, the sinus uh, node where the heartbeat initiates is no longer uh, taking charge. And you may have many different areas in the heart firing independently, causing a very chaotic, irregular heart rhythm. And that might be no problem for a patient, but more often than not, it does have uh, implications, and and it also has uh, a number of uh, precipitating factors that we are aware of. Right. So a lot of different areas of the heart firing at once. So that is that fluttering that people feel in their chests during an AFib? It may be a fluttering. It could sometimes might feel like pressure in the chest. It could feel uh, uncomfortable uh, to the uh, patient, and uh, it also can make them feel short of breath and more than just fluttering or an unusual sensation in the chest, it gives them a discomfort. You know, we usually don't feel our heartbeat because we are accustomed to the heart beating regularly, and unless the heart's pounding hard like we've just exercised, we don't pay much attention to it, but it's when you have those extra beats, something out of the ordinary that the body is not accustomed to then we start having symptoms. Right. I could see where that would be very alarming to someone. So who is at risk for AFib? So we look at atrial fibrillation from a number of different perspectives, and there's a lot of risk factors for atrial fibrillation. There's a small percent of the population that have atrial fibrillation without any precipitating cause. And we don't understand that very well. It can happen in 18, 19, 20-year-olds. But usually we see atrial fibrillation as an older age group, somewhere not old, 40, but uh, 40 and up, I would say, would be a more common time that atrial fibrillation might occur. And the precipitating factors might be uh, alcohol, for instance, and in uh, this country around holiday time, or probably around the world, around Christmas, holiday time, New Year's, uh, alcohol intake is probably at a higher than normal uh, rate. And People go into atrial fibrillation as a result of excessive alcohol, and we call that actually holiday heart syndrome since it does occur during the uh, holiday months, and we're slowly reaching that time of year again. So that's something to keep in mind is to moderate alcohol consumption. But more commonly throughout the rest of the year, reasons people might go into atrial fibrillation might be a thyroid problem, might be longstanding high blood pressure, might be heart valve problems such as a leaky mitral valve 
or a mitral valve that is narrowed and doesn't open as well as it should. So there are a number of uh, diseases that cause atrial fibrillation. So how do you diagnose this, Dr. Silverman? Is there a test you give someone? Do they wear a heart monitor? How do you figure out that, oh, this is AFib? Usually a simple EKG, if they're having the symptoms at that moment, will diagnose the rhythm disturbance. If it's an intermittent problem, something we call paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or something that happens at intervals, uh, we can give patients monitors to wear either uh, surface monitors on the skin or even implantable monitors that uh, measure the heart rhythm and report out uh, on a monthly basis, weekly basis, whenever the patient has symptoms. And these uh, little devices last about three years and can pick up intermittent episodes of atrial fibrillation that might not otherwise become apparent because they are so infrequent. But the problem is that it's the infrequent atrial fibrillation that can result in patients having strokes, which is one of the major complications of atrial Mm -hmm. fibrillation. So if someone does have AFib, what are the treatment options? We usually measure their risk to having an embolic or, or event. Embolic means a blood clot leaving the heart because of the AFib. Now, when, when blood travels through the heart, it is pumped through the heart. So the heart actually cleans itself with every beat because blood is ejected. But in atrial fibrillation, blood travels rather stagnantly through the top chambers. And there are structures in the top chambers, uh, the appendages, we call them, which we don't know what the function of those are or were. They certainly don't have much of a function now, but blood gets caught in the left atrial appendage and can become stagnant and actually form a clot. And when it forms a clot, that clot can break off. Now, we measure risk of patients having uh, a propensity to form that clot and break off by something called the CHADS-VASC score. And what that represents, it's a measure of certain risk factors that we know lead to embolic events or stroke in patients. And the CHADS-VASC score includes age, blood pressure, uh, uh, gender, uh, and things like that, so that we can actually come up with a score that says, yes, you are at risk, or no, you're not at risk. If you have a low CHADS-VASC score, one or zero, for instance, you may just as well be as safe to take aspirin daily. But if your chads vas score is greater than one, your risk of stroke goes up with every increase in that chads vas score. And at that time, then full-dose anticoagulation would be recommended. And then you need to weigh the risk of giving somebody a blood thinner against the risk of them bleeding from being on that blood thinner and decide if the patient would do best with full-dose anticoagulation or just with aspirin. And that full-dose anticoagulation may be uh, warfarin or Coumadin, which is probably more commonly known, or if anybody watches uh, football on television on the weekends, of course, you will see a lot of commercials for other agents that we now use for treatment of uh, atrial fibrillation as uh, blood thinners. Uh, just to name a few uh, by their brand name, Eliquis, Xarelto, Pradaxa. Uh, so those agents may also be used if 
you meet the criteria for being anticoagulated with those agents. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks for the great information about AFib. That's uh, really useful. So let's turn to congestive heart failure. If we can just quickly talk about that for a minute. So what's the difference between congestive heart failure and AFib? Well, interestingly, atrial fibrillation can lead to congestive heart failure, and congestive heart failure can lead to atrial fibrillation. Sometimes we don't know which came first, the uh, chicken or the egg, but the fact is that patients who go into atrial fibrillation with a rapid response can develop heart failure. And those patients who go into heart failure by virtue of the fact that the pressure in their hearts are increased because of the inability of the heart to clear itself of blood can also lead to atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation as a result of, for instance, high blood pressure uh, is a problem because that also is a uh, risk for congestive heart failure, the so-called ejection fraction preserved group. So they have normal heart function, but yet they go into heart failure. And people didn't understand that until fairly recently. And it's because the uh, heart muscle in the hypertensive or high blood pressure patient does not relax properly. So blood does not fill the chamber properly. It does not stretch properly. And the pressure builds up in the left atrium that leads to the left ventricle, then into the lungs, leading to congestion, fluid congestion, and congestive heart failure. Atrial fibrillation makes that worse because the atria is not being emptied properly and the ventricle is not being filled properly and it's a series of bad events that lead to heart failure. Right. So when it comes to symptoms or feeling things, when we were talking about AFib, you talked about the fluttering and that uncomfortable feeling. And, oh gosh, I'm actually feeling my heart. What is going on? What are the symptoms of AFib? Is there a feeling in our chest we should be watching out for, or are the symptoms different? Well, the symptoms of congestive heart failure would be predominantly shortness of breath, decreased exercise tolerance, inability to lie flat because you get more shorter breath as blood returns to the heart because of your prone or supine position, and the development of intolerable shortness of breath, almost a feeling of drowning. So uh, those symptoms are symptoms to watch for. Other symptoms might be uh, decreased exercise tolerance and ability to do today what you could do two months ago, uh, weight gain, uh, swelling in the legs, uh, things along those lines. So the symptoms are become apparent to the individual, uh, but the shortness of breath <clears throat> is the probably the most predominant rhythm that people need to uh, uh, recognize. So shortness of breath is the telltale sign when it comes to congestive heart failure. When it comes to diagnosis, what is most important to know? We have a number of modalities available to us to diagnose congestive heart failure. First one is a certainly a physical exam and a history, which are critical in making the diagnosis. The proper questions to be asked, the weight gain, the swelling in the legs, shortness of breath, can't lay down, things like that and physical exam, listening for certain heart sounds that change with heart failure, and listening for evidence of fluid in the lungs. And that those are the most important things. Right. And then treatment for someone with congestive heart failure is what? Well, treatment uh, varies depending upon the type of heart failure. But in general, 
uh, diuretics or, or pills that uh, medications that make you produce urine, treating the blood pressure, lowering the heart rate, and we have a number number of other newer modalities that we use uh, to treat heart failure. But in general, uh, chronic management would include the diuretic therapy and uh, a number of medications to keep the heart rate down. And of course, dietary management of salt intake is, is a great help to reduce the recurrence of heart failure. Really good information, Dr. Silverman. We appreciate your time. That's Dr. Russell Silverman, a cardiologist at St. Joseph's Health. For more information, please visit sjhsyr.org. That's sjhsyr.org. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and check out the entire podcast library for topics of interest to you. This is St. Joseph's Health MedCast. From St. Joseph's Health, I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.